Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening? This is William Moore. Um, once again, um, coming to you. This is Chill Time is Will Time. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to pre- uh, say thank you and appreciate give my appreciation out to everybody who listened to episode one. Um, I had a lot had a lot of fun doing it. Learned a couple things. Switch a little thing, couple things up. Um, for those of you who are listening to this recording, yes, that is different intro music, and will be different outro music. I am kind of experimenting here with um, my intro and outro music to uh, see what I like the best, man. Kind of see what um see what uh I feel like fits the show the best. Um, if you guys have any recommendations, or if there's something that uh, you hear that I play that you think fits best. Hit me up. Let me know, you know, at chilltime at gmail.com. Um, and, yeah, I'll make it make necessary adjustments. Um, other than that, um, can I keep uh, get you guys up to speed with where I, what I've been doing and um, where I'm at right now? Um, currently, I'm in Chicago for our work conference. Um, I am at the 2018 Policy Link Equity Conference. Um so far, it's been a pretty tremendous experience. I've really enjoyed my stay here. Um, I'm staying at the Hyatt Regency in Chicago. I, um, I've had a lot of fun. Kind of went out a little bit earlier today, saw some of the sites, um, saw a couple landmarks. Um, I've been to Chicago a couple times, but i got to say, this is the first time that I've actually gone and um, really have allowed myself to experience it. Um, and it's been a positive experience so far. It's been great. Um, I, uh, had some really good food. Um, the weather has been awesome, especially compared to Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's been freezing up there. I know some of the locals down here in Chicago think that maybe the weather's been a bit, uh, bit, a bit chilly, but to me, it's, you know, it's almost felt like a heat wave compared to, uh, to, uh, what we've been having. Um, and I gotta say, for day one, um, this conference has been uh, pretty tremendous so far. Um, one of the first sessions I kind of sat in was uh, about addressing equity through uh, communication and, and storytelling and narratives, which I think is super imperative, especially when you think about how. Um, Narrative shapes shapes a lot of how we view um, communities of color in this country, um, and how narrative has really uh, been used or weaponized against community co- of communities of color in this country. Um, and that is something that I really wanted to address in this episode. Um, I wanted to couple touch on a couple things in the episode, being one being equity, two being uh, the resurgence of uh, Dapper Dan. 
if anybody know who Dapper Dan is, he is a legendary, uh, uh, a legendary uh, Harlem Taylor um, from the eighties um, to the early nineties. I believe like nineteen ninety two when the shop was finally uh, shut down, and uh, he's made a comeback, man. He's got a collaboration with Gucci coming up, so I'll get into a little bit more detail with that uh, a tad bit later. Um, but um. To get back onto to the topic of equity, um, I really kind of wanted to touch on um, what equity is and how it's actually being addressed or not addressed um, these days in America. Uh, equity is is well, first and foremost, um, equity is making sure that everybody has what they need. Um, and that makes it different from equality because equality is just simply making sure that everybody has the same thing. But as we all know, everybody is in a different place. Not everybody is at the same place in life or has the same exact disadvantages or de- or advantages. So equity is a way to uh, address that, um, to remove uh, barriers that may be in place for for people um or or let me rephrase that equity is a way to make sure that everybody has what they need regardless of what barrier they have so that everybody could be successful and live long healthy happy lives and lately it has become uh essentially a buzzword used by uh, politicians uh Job, you know, what I'm saying places of business, any and everywhere. Um, it's a new term to use for any and everybody, um, including organizations, to seem like they are seem like they are progressive. Um, I do believe that uh, I believe in equity. I believe that equity is needed um, in all facets in this country because there is a severe lack of it. Um, Time and time again, each and every day, I believe all of us, unless you're living in a bubble, <clears throat> which very well, very much, you know, very well, some of you may be, um, I believe that people can essentially walk right out of uh, their homes and see uh, different people um, in dire straits, uh, facing perilous situations that. Um, Perilous situations <clears throat> that could be easily be solved um, um, easily be solved if they're given the right type of resources to address the issue. Um, and if you're just now uh, joining our sh- uh, joining the show, once again, the topic uh, that I'm opening up with is about equity. Um, and that's kind of in honor of the fact that I am currently attending the 2018 Policy Link Equity Conference. Um, in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and the issue that I have with it is I've kind of sat back and watched a lot of people or a lot of organizations claim to be addressing um, the lack of equity in certain situations, but being very selective about it. And so if we're being selective about how we um, distribute resources or adjust equity, is that really equity at all? 
or really addressing the issue of equity at all? Well, I say no, it's not. And what I mean by this, um, what an example that I'll give you. Um, let's use an example of the opioid crisis. Okay. Um, so now um, the addiction to painkillers, opioids, heroin, you know, all those things that kind of fall under that umbrella. It's, it's, it's become so pervasive that it is left the inner city and moved out into the suburbs. So essentially now it's affecting, you know, um, Kristen and Terry that live out in a, you know, nice, pristine, cookie cutter neighborhood. And so it is basically scared suburbanites in white America um, to the point where now they know that they are not immune from these type of issues, um, addiction to, to these powerful uh, uh, drugs. Well, years ago, and uh, some people may have heard me talk about this before, years ago when uh, opioids hit the black and brown communities, um, it was not seen as an epidemic. It was not seen as a crisis. Uh, it essentially was seen as um, just a black and brown problem. It was seen as black and brown people being stupid, not making positive choices with their lives. And instead of trying to put resources in those neighborhoods to address those issues and, uh, you know, kind of treating those issues with preventative measures or um, greeting, you know, those addicts with resources such as rehab, um, around and therapy around chemical dependency and finding places to or helping them find you know ways to still take care of their children versus putting their children in the system they were just met with met with uh, jail time so when a black or brown person was caught either selling or using these drugs there was no there was no digging deeper to find what the story was, what the root cause was, what may have led them to said situations. It was, congratulations, we're going to give you five to ten years in prison, we're going to take your children. I don't care if you have relatives that they could go to or anything, we're going to take your children, we're going to put them in foster care and hope that the best works out. Fast forward, and now we're... Um, you know, in the 21st century, you know, and now that drugs are now um, in the white community, now it's an epidemic. Now opioids is a crisis. Now we have to find ways to actually address it. We have to make sure that we're putting millions of dollars into uh, therapy um, and other resources to, uh, to help these people out. Um, the narrative was quickly changed or co-opted to um, addicts being people who are made bad decisions to people who are just a victim of their situation. They are, we are constantly shown infomercials or videos or given literature telling us that we all of a sudden now that we need to have pity and feel sorry for these addicts um, and 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 do all that we can to uh, 
to help get them off of drugs and keep these families together. Basically saying that, you know what, jail time, prison time, and fines are not the answer. Well, the difference between that is they only feel that way now because now it's their sons and daughters who are the victims uh, of these drugs, who can't escape the grip of these drugs. Um, And I struggle with that because I feel like, um, should it be an eye for an eye type of deal? Um, Should it be an issue where, you know what? The only possible way they're really ever going to understand and uh, understand how the black and brown community feels and really um, address these issues in an equitable manner is if they feel the pain as well and that their relatives or siblings or sons or daughters are thrown in prison and and, and their families torn apart too. Or should... I have more of a heart and say, you know what? It's time to be bigger than that. Let's uh, let's do all we can to help these people and hope that they look back on our communities the same way and now that they've sort of uh, had a glimpse of what our communities, the black and brown communities, are experiencing. I really struggle with knowing the correct answer for that. Maybe some of you do. And if you do, please do uh, chime in and let me know what you think about that. But I personally, uh, it's it's something that I battle with. But being that I laid that example out, that is, I don't believe that that's equity at all. Um, because they're selectively choosing, choosing groups of people that they want to um, close down those gaps and, 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 and throw those resources and knock down those barriers forward. If we're going to be in the business of helping people and taking down barriers and closing gaps, then we need to do that for everyone, not just some people. Um, I recently heard a story with my job about a young lady who works for a county a couple hours south of where I work at, and it is a food shelf. And she's talking about how the food shelf has a uh, extremely high Latino population. Um, and that the food shelf is only open three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. They only open from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. You can only access the food shelf through uh, referral. So if you get, you can get a referral, and then you have to get to the food shelf within three days. Well, that's a problem, A, because the food shelf isn't open um, every day of the week. It's only open three days a week. Um, and only for a couple hours a day. So only people can really, and, and it's in the morning, so only people can really get access to the food shelf are people who aren't working, okay? And then when they say they give you the three days, it's not even three business days, it's three regular days. So if you if you get a referral for this food shelf on, let's say, a Friday, if you're not in there by Monday, you're screwed up. You, you, you're screwed. There's nothing There's nothing for you. There's, they can do nothing for you. Um being that they are in an area with a high Latino population, they also absolutely refuse to print any type of documentation or literature in Spanish. 
They have a board and uh, that kind of is over the food shelf in which they will not allow people to come sit in on bo- and listen in on board meetings. Uh, she also said that she doesn't even know the names of everybody a part of the board, know anything about terms for how long board members are allowed to stay aboard and everything like that. At the end of her saying this at this uh, meeting we were at, a lot of people were saying, yeah, I, I kind of don't understand. I don't know how we address that, uh, that accessibility issue or that equity issue. I don't understand. And I sat there and I said to them, raised my hand and I said, are we serious right now? Are we really, as, as public health professionals, are we really all going to sit there and pretend as if we don't understand uh, what is happening here? I said, this place does not want to be accessible. They don't, they, don't, they don't want to serve their population. They've shown you that they don't want to be open. They don't want to be, they don't want to communicate with the population to most benefit and who most populates the area. They refuse to communicate with the with public or anybody trying to partner with them. This is a prime example of like structural racism. This is a prime example of a food shelf, which is supposed to help address an equity issue around um, food insecurity. When it comes to a certain group of people, they aren't. They aren't. They 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 pretend as if they don't want to operate under under the guise of equity. Now, when it comes to the old folks' home, which is a couple blocks down the road or something like that, that is predominantly white, they make sure they're about as accessible as possible for them. But for the Latino population, they're very inaccessible. So now you guys tell me, is this food shelf addressing food insecurity in an equitable manner or not? I don't think it is. As a matter of fact, I know it isn't. This is yet just another example of organizations picking and choosing how they're going to deliver resources and provide equity to its 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 constituents. And once again, if you're picking and choosing how you're providing you which constituents you're prov- you're providing uh, resources to or being equitable towards, you in fact are not being equitable at all. And I suppose I shouldn't be surprised by this. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that as as a whole America would behave in this in this manner. Um because it's proven itself to be this way all along. You know, I've said this before, too. I'm sure some people have heard me say this be- that know me have heard me say this before, too. I frequently cringe when I hear people go, America is better than this. I'm sorry, it isn't. When See, when you use a term that a cut, like somebody or whatever is better than this, you're us- you're usually referring to somebody who typically performs at, at a at a a veter- uh, performs their duties at a proficient rate. Like saying you're better than this is what you say to a student who usually gets straight A's and then all of a sudden on one test or exam they got like a, a C or a D. Saying you're better than this 
is something you say to um, a coworker who usually always meets their deadlines, but maybe they missed a deadline one week. Saying you're better than this is something that you say about an athlete, let's say a basketball player, that normally averages like 30 points a night, and then all of a sudden they have one bad game and they only put up, you know, five or ten points. Because you know they're going to bounce back the next game or the next exam um, or the next deadline, and they're going to produce. Because their track record has shown that they have produced um, previous to that. In terms of race relations and equity, America has never shown that they have met the mark. They have never shown that they could produce. In the realm of race and equity, America has never shown that they can get an A on exam. They've always got the D and the F on the exam. In terms of race and equity, America has never met a work deadline. They've missed every deadline that they could possibly make. In terms of race and equity, if America was an athlete, it has never averaged 30 points a game. It has always been worthy of being set on the bench. Always. Saying that you're better than that, or that this country is better than that, takes away a sense of urgency that they have never been there to begin with and that they need to improve, that this country needs to improve. And that's what we need, and, and, and that's what this country needs to do. We have never met the mark when it comes to addressing issues of race and equity here. Ever, not once. And so what I would say is when we make the when I make the comment that America is in fact showing exactly what it is um, through this election, through the way that they have behaved, through the way that white supremacy has reared its ugly head, um, that's to say not to say that America can never be better. It's to say that as much as just the way you would say to a student who has never made the grade, just as just what you would say to the coworker who has never met the deadline or the athlete who has never hit the mark. What can we do to get better? Show, 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 show the urgency of what we can do to get better. But pretending like, you know, the country is better than what it's shown is not is not working. It never has it never has worked. I mean for God's sakes, it took the Civil War is what? The known as the fifth bloodiest war in history. It took the fifth bloodiest war in history for this country just to give black people freedom on paper, not even in practice. And I say that because there was still indentured servitude and and stuff like that going on in this country. Fast forward about 100 years or whatever, or actually less than 100 years, and you finally get the Civil Rights Act. You could still make the complaint that, you know, many black and brown people aren't free with the, um, the over-criminalization of black and brown people, the over-policing of our neighborhoods, um, the disproportionate prison sentences, that black and brown people are receiving um, compared to their white counterparts. 
which is, in, I mean, it's a fact. I mean, 85% of the people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses are black and brown people. How is that possible when studies have shown that black males and white males between the ages of 20 to, what is it, the 40s or whatever, you'll have to uh, fact check it and read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. But it basically says that they experiment with drugs at pretty much the exact same rate. But yet, we're over-criminalized and disproportionately jailed for something that our white counterparts are doing as well. So like I said, and in fact, America has never been better than this. Ever. And everything that this country um, has been doing in regards to race relations has been in an equitable manner. So all this is to say that I'm just trying to address, like, while everybody's out there, and I know I'm sure they join different groups or in their job, they hear about, um, the you know, they hear the buzzword equity being used or they're different you know, places of work are hiring equity officers and stuff like that. Make sure equity is actually being addressed. Make sure that it isn't just a charade or some type of generic, um, some type of generic exercise that your place of work or whatever is putting on to put a, to 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 uh, Put a facade out there like they're trying to address issues of equity when, in fact, they're not looking to move forward the needle at all. Make sure that the way black and brown people being treated is not um, used as a tool um, for cosmetic purposes. Make sure it's something that is actually being exercised in your place of work. Um and I'm hoping uh, that here at this equity summit, that's something, some things that I can, some stories about that are, 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 I'm hoping that I can hear more stories about that in different places from the different folks and the different uh, speakers that involve. There's like several thousand people here, I think, um, which is great. So it'd be great to rub elbows with all these different people and uh, exchange ideas and, and uh, stories and um, learn what I can take back to um, my place of work and in my surroundings and in my city um, for uh, to help improve things around that realm. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, pretty essentially what I got to say about that. Now, uh, the next thing I want to talk about just recently I was actually, uh, I was reading the new GQ style magazine and had an article in there on my guy Dapper Dan. Um, if any of you out there know anything about Dapper Dan, he was a guy back in the, uh, from about 82 to 92, big time. And to be, essentially, to be honest with you, before that, um, he kind of got his start as like a professional gambler. Um, but, uh, he kind of turned into a cat who was a who turned into a primetime like a street a street tailor man. Um, he was the guy putting together. They they used to say that Dapper Dan's um, bootleg material was so dope that they couldn't call them knockoffs. They called them knockups, which was uh, which is dope. 
shows you how much credibility it had. I mean, um, all the biggest drug dealers, all the biggest hip-hop artists from about 82 to 92 would come through and get something made by Dapper Dan. Always with the, you know, the the Louis Vuitton print or the custom, you know, double G print from from Gucci and stuff like that. And as a matter of fact, the only reason he was, he, he, he was so, like I said, he was so, uh, you know, well-known. Every, you know, anybody with any type of money um, loved to have their stuff on in his, in, in, you know, artists like love to have their stuff on uh, in their videos. Um, unfortunately, he was raided and shut down um, in 92 when uh, lawyers from Fendi kind of got a glimpse of uh, some knockoff material that he had put together in his shop. When uh, the infamous tape between Mike Tyson and Mitch Green, I believe it was like in 92, Mike Tyson punched out Mitch, Mitch Green before a heavyweight a fight in front. And, every, and uh, the lawyers kind of came through, started suing him, and so on and so forth. Um, and I guess the reason why I'm bringing this up is like, it just kind of shows you how some things can come full circle. Let's fast forward, you know, a couple of decades, and um, Dapper Dan, man, is seeing a resurgence. He's kind of coming back. Um, and this resurgence kind of happened because the creative director from Gucci, Alessandro uh, Michelle, kind of remade one of Dapper Dan's coats that he made for an Olympic sprinter, Diane Dixon, back in the day. Um and social media kind of, you know how social media is. Social media got a hold of it, and people were kind of talking about bringing up the conversation of cultural appropriation and European companies or, you know, white-owned businesses kind of like, you know, not uh, really appreciating or liking black culture unless they want to be able to take advantage of it, so on and so forth. And so what happened, instead of uh, kind of like turning a blind eye to it, Gucci actually approached uh, Dapper Dan and kind of struck a deal with him. And so instead of uh, Dapper Dan essentially is back in business, but instead of using um, essentially like bootleg materials in a shop like he used to back on 125th in Harlem, uh, Gucci kind of put him up in a shop and they're giving him, you know, custom fabrics and stuff like that. And they're letting him go to work. And it's and it's dope, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it's like an awesome collaboration, you know. It's awesome to see um, a huge giant in the fashion industry recognizing the talents and the skills of of somebody from the streets, like a street legend, and and somebody who has and recognizing the skill and the influence that he's had on uh, the black community. Um, but not just the black community, the hip hop community, the sports community. I mean, like I said, Dapper Dan's threads, you know, his creations like transcended, um, just Harlem. Everybody knew who he was and everybody came through to get something made. Um, I think I even read in the article that one of his biggest, uh, one of his biggest, uh, customers and a trendsetter for him at one point in time was Alpo, Alberto Martinez. Anybody know who that is? Um. They, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, 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 the character the character Rico from Paid in Full was basically based off of him. Um, and so Dan outfitted everybody. 
Dap outfitted so many people, man. It had such a big influence. And Gucci saw that. And, you know, granted, they took some urging from social, you know, the public and social media. They are, they are you know, doing a collaboration project with his brother. And they're making money together is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think that that's huge. So I'm really uh, interested to see the type of products that will be coming out here. Um, within the next uh, year or so um, between Gucci and uh, Dap. Um, I even read an article at one point in time, uh, Dapper Dan, they flew him out to Italy um, to look at textiles and stuff like that. And uh, as soon as he finished, he pretty much, he hit up his son Jelani and was telling him how dope, you know, they dressed out there and essentially like how he just saw some parallels between how some of the men in Italy dressed as far as with the style, the flair, and stuff like that, with how um, cats back here in the States dressed, you know what I mean? Especially some of the uh, some of the cats, some of the men out in Harlem. Um, so kind of remind me of like cats like, um, you know, my grandfather's generation, you know? My grandfather and my great-uncles, those cats always dressed, you know, impeccable. You know, it didn't matter even if it was just to go to the grocery store. And I just thought that that was a real cool anecdote, you know what I mean? Like, showing in a way, like, how fashion and clothes, like, can kind of bring people together. How two different groups of people, you know, like I said, like a world apart on different sides of the globe, um, still had some strong similarities. That's cool to me. It might be something that's very uh, small, Maybe maybe even remedial to some people, but I think it's dope. And so all that just to say, you know, yo, congrats to Dapper Dan. You know, I wish you all the success in the world, and I can't wait to see uh, the type of collaboration projects, the things that you put out with Gucci here coming pretty soon. I am not a Gucci wearer. That stuff is out of my tax bracket, but I will definitely, uh, I will definitely support. You know what I'm saying? What you're doing. And I hope I hope you get back on top, man. I hope your shop is the place that everybody comes to like it used to be back from like 82 to 92. You deserve it. Um, and so I guess now, you know, I get off of that. But one thing I've always said, too, this is actually going to be a nice segue into kind of the last thing I want to talk about. And I really be interested to see what some listeners think about this. Um. Because I've always said that uh, fashion is is an expression of self, um, being your emotional state, uh, your mental state, and essentially it's art. Um, Designers are artists, you know what I mean? And so being somebody who loves art himself, I paint, um, I love museums. Uh, it's kind of got me talking, uh, got me to thinking about a conversation I was having with a friend not too long ago about the struggle um, between starving artists and the average customer. And I'll elaborate, I'll unpack that a little bit more for you to understand what I'm saying. So, the starving artist, um, or the narrative of the starving artist, is the artist who is all of his income comes from. Um, whatever the product they put out, whether it be sculptures, uh, paint on canvas, I don't know, music, poetry, anything, right? 
don't have any other job, any other way of feeding and supporting themselves. All right. Um, being somebody who loves art and paints himself, I totally understand the reasoning behind some artists price putting their price points where they do. I've seen paintings at different uh, art festivals like Art of World that we have in Northeast Minneapolis here in Minnesota. Well, I'm not here in Minnesota right now, but where I live in Minnesota. And I've seen, you know, and it's it's an event that's held over a couple of days. And it's a, it's a tremendous event. I'm talking about uh, several hundred artists uh, all putting their work out on display in, like, the art district. Um, some just for show. Some which you can actually go out and purchase. Um, and I've gone to this event and seen some amazing pieces. But some of it's, simp- it's something that I just simply can't afford, you know. There are pieces or compositions that they're selling for, like, 700 to a couple thousand dollars, all right? And there are some more inexpensive things, maybe some prints or something like that that'll go anywhere from, you know, 10 bucks to a little bit more. But any of the really super cool art that you, stuff that you, you know, really want to hang out and put on for show and, and like your living room or your office or whatever, that stuff is usually pretty expensive. Now that's the, that's the type of thing that is not very accessible for the average or casual customer. Somebody who is, you know, is is doesn't make money like that, isn't in that type of tax bracket. And so I feel like that is often a struggle like where does where 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 does the where does the goal of the artist and the capability of the consumer, where can they meet in the middle? All right? The artist has to eat, and the consumer needs to have something more affordable. I feel like art is already under fire. Every time the government wants to cut something, they cut arts and stuff from the schools. They are constantly closing, you know what I'm saying, like, you know, um, artists, you know what I'm saying, like centers or whatever in our neighborhoods and in our cities. And that in itself decreases the amount of uh, exposure that that the average person can get to art. And but and while it's also decreasing the amount of exposure that the average person or consumer has with art, it, 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 it uh, decreases their appreciation for the time and effort that it, it, it takes to create a lot of these pieces. Um, there used to be a place called Driftwood um, in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was a small locally owned, uh, local art gallery. And the reason that I used to love that is because its goal was around making art accessible to everybody. So there was no, there were no pieces there that were uh, cost more than 65 bucks. So essentially it made art, any, even the, you know, the nicest forms of, forms of art, um, affordable to everybody. Um, I must admit, I struggle um, with trying to figure out uh, how to address that issue. How do we meet the needs of the artists um, with also meeting the price point and meeting the needs of the consumer? Um, what do we do? Is it Does it come with um, first things first, making sure that we get arts and stuff back into schools? Um, yeah. And and getting more uh, community centers, getting art more involved in 
local community centers and opening more community centers so that people are more more exposed to it. I already feel like the um, one way in which art could definitely um, influence our lives in a positive manner on a daily basis, especially through our government. Can you imagine what uh, that? what our government would be like if the House of Representatives was full with uh, was full of scientists, artists, like a you know a bunch of people who you know are immersed in the art of like critical critical thinking skills, um, facts, exploration, um, and problem solving. Versus what it is, I think in Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson researched, I heard him talk about it on Bill Maher once, that 80% of the House of Representatives come from, have a background of like law. So basically they're professional arguers. They're all about winning, not really doing, necessarily doing what's right for the people or reaching a goal. Like their only goal is just to win, just to beat their opponent out. Which to be honest, totally explains the dysfunction that we have in D.C. right now. But can you imagine what it would be if instead of 80, 20, you know, lawyers to people who really critically think it was more about it was more 80, 20 people who um, were more problem solvers, explorers, thinkers, creative folks. I got a feeling that things would run a lot smoother. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that was just a thought of mine. It was just something that I was kind of thinking heavily about. And it was just a conversation that kind of ended essentially like it started out of pure curiosity. But really, neither one of us had any answers to that. Um, And so, like I said, I really be interested in what uh, what anybody else thinks about that. What you know, how could how could we solve that problem? What do you guys think um, could kind of help bridge that gap between the artist and the consumer? Um, if you have any ideas, please send those those ideas um, to the email um, chill, uh, to chilltownpod at gmail dot com. Um, other than that, uh, once again, this has been Chill Time as Will Time. I would like to say I appreciate anybody who is has tuned in and listened to this episode. If you got any critiques. Um, any ideas for new topics you want to listen to? Um, any suggestions? Like I said before, even if you disagree with me, want to fact check me about something, please send the email out to me. Chilltownpod at gmail.com. Um, and I'd be happy to answer or address any of those. Um, other than that, this has been Chill Time as Will Time. Thank you for listening, and I'll get at you next time. Later. Don't